Welcome to Smash Interrupted. Are you out of your damn mind? You get to drink from the fire hole. No, no. Stop that right there. <sighs> Obviously, Smash. Uh, I got these buttons here that I can press to start the show. Obviously, Smash, my robot, replaced the file for his stupid intro that he likes to do to mess with me instead of the regular Phil Interrupted intro. So sorry about that. Let's play the real Phil Interrupted intro. Welcome to Phil Interrupted. Are you out of your damn mind? You get to drink from the fire hole. This is an embarrassment, a disgrace. What? What's the matter, kid? You got wax in your ears. Hello and welcome to Phil Interrupted. This is the show where I get to do whatever I want while dealing with the constant antics of Smash. We can review movies, video games, and who knows what else. Episodes can be spooky to oddly informative to downright stupid. I am your host, Phil Allen, and I do welcome you to the show. Before we get started... I have to apologize right off the bat. My voice is nasally again. I don't know what's been going on with it. I'm not having allergies. That was earlier in the season. I don't know what my nose is doing. I don't know why I'm talking like that. Yeah, so my, my nose is nasally again. Uh, Phil nasally interrupted. I apologize. You probably don't even notice. I make it a big deal out of nothing. <sighs> what can I say? It's bothering me all day long. People have been saying, you're so nasally today, Phil. And I said, you got the coronavirus? No, I do not have the coronavirus. By the way, at the at the uh, moment here of this recording, coronavirus is still going on. How is that possible? How is this still going on? Now, here's the thing. It is starting to wrap up at the time of this recording. Eh, not wrap up. Let's, let's re- rephrase that. Worldwide... Coronavirus is still kind of raging in some areas, for sure. But in New Jersey, where I live and I record, it is definitely at the lowest levels it's ever been. And that's a good thing, right? I'm so excited to get back to regular life and the regular world. And, you know, I'm pretty much there. I, you know, I have to wear a mask at work. But other than that, I'm back to the regular world, right? I've, I'm done. There's very few cases out there. I'm ready to live life again. I know you guys probably aren't there, too. So, Hallelujah. But with that being said, the pandemic is not officially over, so it is still continuing at the time of this recording. It just goes on forever and ever and ever. But we're not here to talk about the coronavirus. We're all sick and tired of hearing about the coronavirus. We're here to talk about my nasally nose. No, no, we're not here to talk about that either. We're here to talk about a new little show idea that I'm going to be doing. So you may have been familiar if you're a longtime listener or just happened to have listened to an older podcast of Phil Interrupted and heard a little episode called Spooky Creepy Places. You probably, if you have listened to it, you're probably like, I I don't know that. I know it better as Spooky Creepy Places. Spooky Creepy Places is a series of shows that I did where I found, obviously, creepy places with creepy stories. And I think I did five of them. I think there were five editions of that. I don't remember exactly. 
not important. So what I want to do now is kind of want to start a new one, okay? And it's it's a little bit different. It's not just places, okay? It's not just spooky, groupy places. This is called History's Mysteries, Murder, and the Unexplained. Volume 1. Count it. I think you get an idea what we're going to be doing here by the name of this little ditty. It's going to be a reoccurring show that I will do periodically in the future. You know, I hate it when I call stuff ditty. I always, when I listen back to a podcast and I call something a ditty, I'm like, why did I use that word? It's uh, it's not a cool word. Um, I don't know why it seems to flow off the tongue, though, sometimes. So I apologize for the ditty remark. I apologize for the nasal uh, cavities issues that I'm having. I'm just, I'm apologizing for a lot. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm Derek Batacek right now. I'm just constantly apologizing for everything on the show. But I think you guys might be ready to get into a little of history mysteries. <laughs> Murder and the Unexplained, Volume 1. First topic on the podcast tonight, or today, depending when you're listening, is going to be a Seedor Fink. A Seedor Fink. As soon as I hear that name, I think of a Seedor. A Seedor is a character in Lord of the Rings. He's in the very first movie, Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, well, movies and, and the books. And he is the one who originally has the ring and it corrupts him and they have the war and all that anyway um it just that name really reminds me a Seedor Fink is this guy's name but a Seedor is the one from Lord of the Rings I am so distracted on this show so let's <laughs> let's get, let's get into this a Seedor Fink a Seedor let's just call him a Seedor for fun he came over from the Atlantic, from Poland, and set up shop in New York City in the early part of the 20th century. However, on the night of March 9th, 1929, this is going back a bit, he would become famous in a tragic way? Let's find out more. On that very night, he made several laundry deliveries. I guess he had a laundry business. And he returned to his living quarters at blah blah blah, who cares, 132nd Street, New York City, at 10.15 p.m. It's a late laundry delivery, if you ask me. Now, his uh, laundry was attached to his building, okay, who cares? So at 10.30, his neighbors heard screams, but they heard no shot gunshots or anything out of the ordinary besides just some screams. And being good Samaritans, they went out and they summoned the police. Now, a police officer happened to be nearby, and he rushed to the scene. Hey, what? What's going on? You heard about this? Read about this, Kevin? Now, little time had elapsed, obviously, from the time that the screams were heard and when that first policeman arrived at the apartment. Now, the police officer, he interviewed the neighbor, and the officer tried the front door and found it locked from the inside. So... Obviously, that's how locked doors are. Couldn't get in. Hmm. You have to try and figure this out. So he went to the back door. I also kind of find this interesting that the apartment had a back door. So this might not be like an apartment complex like we're used to thinking of. This may have been like a, you know, maybe more of a 
residential type apartment, had a front door, back door. So he tried the back door and found that this was also locked. He then went on to test the windows, and he found all of them to be locked and shut. Later, he ended up finding out that they were nailed shut. Hmm. That's a little strange. Now, there was no way that a person could have left the premises without locking a door or window on the inside while standing outside. Obviously, I think everyone understands that. Uh, You can't lock a door from the inside when you're standing on the outside. Well, actually, I guess you can with a key. That's actually fairly easy to do. I wonder what they mean by this. Maybe it was some sort of a different lock. Either way, the windows were nailed shut. Nevertheless, the windows were too small for an adult to squeeze through. So the officer broke a window. This is back in 1929, just breaking shit. And asked a small boy who was nearby to climb through and unlock the front door. That right there sounds to me like that would not be kosher in 2021. Hey, we can't get into this building. We're not sure if something bad happened. Little boy, little boy, would you mind jumping through this window I just smashed and could possibly cut you? Could you please jump through and uh, see if there's a murdered body or dead people or a satanic cult inside? You know, fend for yourself, little one. Uh, Zombies in there. Anyway, he asked him to do this and he asked him to unlock the front door. And he was able to get in. (laughs) Lo and behold, 1929 for you. The officer was able to get into the apartment and survey the scene. A seal door, think, lay on the floor with three gunshot wounds. Okay, so that's important. I heard this. there were screams earlier, but they said there was no uh, gunshots heard or, you know, shuffling or fighting or anything of the sorts, just screaming. So he was shot three times, two times to the chest and one time to the wrist. Because of the impossibility of a second person being in the room, the police immediately suspected suicide, but there was no gun anywhere on the premises. There was no money or valuables stolen, so it didn't appear that the robbery had been the motive. Fingerprints were taken, but the only ones found were a Seeldor Finks. Actually, a Seeldor Finks, but again, Lord of the Rings. The crime was now clearly a homicide, but how did the murderer get into the apartment? And more puzzling, how did he get out? And what was the motive? I don't know the motive here, maybe we'll find out, but my guess is maybe he had a key. Right? And he was able to lock the door as he left. Desperate by now, the police searched the premise for hidden openings in the walls of the apartment. They found no secret doors or anything of the such. Somehow, a person had gained entrance into the locked apartment, murdered Fisk, and left through... Wait, murdered Fisk? I thought it was Fink. Hold on, let me scroll back. It's definitely Fink, so this article has a typo on it. Uh, Murdered Fink, and then left through an exit that was not a door or a window. This case would never be solved, and it remains an unsolved murder in the legends of New York City's police department. There's a lot here that they are leaving out. What kind of uh, 
blood splatter was there uh, in terms of the shots. Obviously, the wrist. Uh, there's two shots to the chest and one shot to the wrist. Seems to me likely that the shot through the wrist was probably a self-defense. You know, holding out your arm, trying to block the shot. If someone's pointing a gun at you, that's your natural reaction. So definitely, I would definitely lean towards this person, Isildur, was murdered. Okay, I'm going to go with that. And I'm just going to go with the fact that the guy probably had a key to the apartment and locked the doors behind him. Maybe he went out the back door, locked it, went through the front door and locked it behind him. But I'm assuming that he had like a key, right? So you could do like a, a deadbolt or something like that and you could lock the door behind you. If it wasn't a deadbolt and it was strictly, you know, like the doorknob where you, you've got like the, um, the little part on the, the knob that's either horizontal or it's vertical. If it's vertical, usually that means that it's going to be locked. And if it's horizontal, it's unlocked. If it was something like that, wait a minute. No, you can still do that when you leave. You can turn it and then shut the door behind you and still lock it. I don't know. This sounds to me like this probably should have been pretty easy to figure out. But 1929 coppers, I guess, weren't the best. Either way, the case has remained unsolved. This next one's kind of a, an interesting story. I'm going to butcher some of the names in this because I believe it is of Turkish descent. And I do not know how to properly speak and pronounce Turkish names. So it's going to be bad. Uh, just bear with me. In 1929, director Halid Adem went through the basement of a Turkish palace looking for old maps at the request of a German theologian. Theologian? Like a theorist? Gustav Adolf Dasroman. Edham happened upon a mysterious artifact. It was a small map inked onto animal skin, although only a fragment of it remained. At first, it looked like any other aged map, but upon further inspection, something caught the attention of Dasman. Dasman! It was ultimately identified as the Piri Rias map, which incorporated the only known copy of Christopher Columbus's maps. Christopher Columbus, man, that guy, he's been canceled, huh? Cancel culture, killing Columbus. Not only did the Piri Rias map of 1513, good lord, we're talking super old times uh, map here. Not only did this include excessive annotations and accurate depictions of the Azores, the Canary Islands, Atlantic Islands, and Japan, but historians were amazed to find it included a depiction of Antarctica. However, Antarctica wasn't discovered until 1773. So how could it possibly be on a map dating from 260 years ago? The mystery deepened further. Not only did the Piri Rias map show the coastline of Antarctica, but it displayed the portions of the continent without its ice cap, which were only visible over 6,000 years ago. The Piri Rias map 
has proved to be an object of great debate and controversy among cartographers, researchers, and historians for decades. Is it proof of an ancient, advanced civilization? Does it prove the history of our own civilization is wrong? Or is there a simpler answer to this baffling mystery? That is definitely something that makes you scratch your head. How could it be possible that this guy would have a detailed map of Antarctica when nobody else knew about it? I don't know. I suppose it's possible that this guy traveled and found out about Antarctica, but not really. That's a really long time ago. Let's dive a little bit more in depth. In that very year, 1513, the Ottoman Turkish cartographer and geographer <sighs> Ahmad Piri Rias, otherwise known as Piri Rias, I don't know why they got a, a long name. Piri Rias set out to document the known world in map form. I like maps. I do. I've always liked maps. I'm a map fan. Rias was also an admiral in the Turkish Navy and a seasoned traveler of the high seas. See, there we go. He knew a thing or two about coastlines and continents. Rias drew up a map on gazelle skin from 20 different sources. Say what? <clears throat> Making sure to cite every map and chart as he went along. Some of the sources used by Piri date back as far as 400 BC. Rias acknowledged he himself hadn't visited many of the lands that he documented. Okay, so that's important to know. However, his creation was still academically valued. Rias even owned a hand-drawn map by Christopher Columbus. It was left to him in the will of his uncle who personally sailed with Columbus 20 years before. This map was one of Columbus's lost maps. So Rias's reproduction was the only known representation available at the time. But despite this, the map remained a relatively obscure artifact. It wasn't until it reemerged in 1929, isn't that when our last story we just talked about was 1929, did it begin to conjure up interest. Even then, it was still brushed over for a number of years. However, in 1965, Professor Charles Hapgood from the University of New Hampshire scrutinized the map with several of his students. They too noticed that the map's depiction of the Antarctica coastline, but they also picked up on yet another strange anomaly. The Piri Rias map had been created using the Mercatori projection, a method of creating maps that allowed for more accurate curvature when moving maps from paper to globe. European cartographers didn't utilize this technique until 1569. Hmm. That seems later. How did he do it? Once again, the map seemed to have defied the laws of time and my nasal cavities. What startled Hapgood the most is that Antarctica's coastline was portrayed without ice. Of all the maps that Rhea cited, none showed such a thing. It would require a map thousands of years old as a source, and no such map is known to have existed. This revelation prompted Hapgood to arrive at the only conclusion possible. 
that ancient mariners had mapped out the Antarctic coastline before the lands had frozen over some 6,000 years ago. He stated that the topographical portrayal of the coastline appeared to be so accurate that whatever advanced society created the map must have possessed some kind of aerial mapping capabilities. Clearly, he had a drone. That's it. Final answer, Regis. He believed that Piri Rias must have used one of these ancient maps to create his own, but he failed to cite it. This was a bold conclusion that implied that everything we knew about civilizations was wrong. Based on what we know, ancient civilizations didn't possess the tools or capabilities to map out continents on such a grand scale. So how could this have been achieved? Speculation among scholars and historians began to take place. Now, of course, we had some paranormal researchers who pointed out to extraterrestrial assistance. Others hypothesized that the possible involvement of a civilization based around the lost city of Atlantis was possible. So, of course, we've got these crazy theories now going on. I'm not saying crazy, but these really outlandish theories, let's put it. Atlantis helping. It was aliens. I don't know. I'm wondering myself if possibly the map was a hoax. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. Soon, skeptics began to dissect the Piri Rias map along with uh, Hapgood's findings, and they came up with a few new conclusions. First, there were quite a few notable differences in the sizes of various coastlines on Rias's map to modern maps. Some areas were missing altogether. Although Hapgood attributed this to copying errors made by Rias, uh, to combat this problem, Hapgood took it upon himself to insert some of the missing sections based on the source maps that Rias had used. What? So this guy just decided, which this seems like kind of bullshit to me, Rias had some empty areas. The guy was from 1513, I think we said. He obviously doesn't have everything perfect. He's guessing on a lot of this. This Hapgood guy from... University of New Hampshire decides to just piece in the missing sections. No problem, bud. Got you covered. 400 years later, got you covered. So more problems arose. What a shocker. After filling in some of the empty areas and altering the landmasses to account for the errors, Hapgood found that the map had five separate equators. I just did a unnecessarily long pause there but I think you know what I'm saying five separate equators I think um, Mr. Rias's and Hapgood's combined map is incorrect just going to throw that out there despite this the map continued to capture the imaginations of other researchers the magic of the Piri Rias map lied in the accuracy of its representation of Antarctica However, critics were quick to point out that the Antarctica on Rias's map barely resembled the real continent at all. So we're getting conflicting information here. Oh, it's super accurate. Oh, nope, it looks nothing like the real continent. What the hell's going on here? Some researchers believe that it is possible that Antarctica's landmass has altered over time. Okay. We're talking 1500s. Could it have changed? Yeah, it 
could have. The ice certainly could have changed, right? They thought the landmass was where the ice was uh, according to a coastline. That's absolutely possible. It's freezing there. I'm sure there's some ice coverage and whatnot. But the actual like mountains and things like that, I'm sure those haven't changed. That 400 years is like nothing in the grand scheme of Earth, which is like billions of years old. With all of the map's errors discovered, it soon became clear that the representation of Antarctica on the map may not be Antarctica at all. In fact, a possible answer to many of the Piri Rias map's mysteries may lie in Rias's own sources. Classical Greek cartographers originally proposed the existence of a southern continent due to the belief that landmasses must be balanced at either end. Therefore, one must exist in the southern hemisphere to balance out the ones in the northern hemisphere. Due to this incorrect belief, many 16th century cartographers included an invented landmass in the southern hemisphere, despite having any proof of an existence of one. Ezreus used at least eight Greek maps and charts to draw up his own map. This was one possible solution for his Antarctica. Alternatively, there is actually one final, even simpler, theory. What many believe to be an ice-free depiction of Antarctica is actually nothing more than the South American coastline. Some researchers hypothesized that Piri Rias simply ran out of room to draw on the gazelle's skin, so he crammed as much of South America in as he could. Interestingly, Rias's notes kind of back up this theory. In his notes, he states that this region was very hot and full of snakes. While these descriptions certainly wouldn't fit in with what they knew about Antarctica at the time, it could very well describe the Amazon jungle. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of snakes. It's super hot in Antarctica. Despite these findings, the mystery of the Piri Rias map continues to baffle and astound researchers to this very day. There has been no official answer to these questions, so it's up to people to make up their own minds. Does the map show an ice-free Antarctica from over 6,000 years ago? Is it proof that an alien technology once existed on Earth? Or did Charles Hapgood let his imagination get the better of him, and the map simply shows an imaginary southern landmass, or perhaps the South American coastline? Until this day, the Piri Rias map remains unsolved. This next one is the story of missing hikers. Hiking's fun. I like hiking. Silver Plume is a quaint historic town in Clear Creek County, Colorado. Early settlers had hoped to strike gold, but only ever found clumps of grayish ores that they deemed worthless. What the miners actually found was silver ore. That's not bad. In 1987, this tiny town had only about 200 residents when a local man, Tom Young, took his dog for a walk one day. Neither he nor his pet ever returned. Nine months later, in June 1988, a local sports writer in Illinois, Keith Reinhardt, was having something of a midlife crisis. He was about to turn 50 and wanted to accomplish certain things while he was still young enough. 
On top of that, living in Chicago was starting to take a toll on him. Stress was taking its toll, and he started to gain weight. He also lost focus and wondered what the future might hold for him. Even though he held a decent job and was a married man of three years with two children, there was a void that needed filling. Reinhard had an old friend called Ted Parker, who owned the KP Cafe in Silver Plume. Ted often talked about a slower and quieter pace of life. This appealed to Reinhardt, and so he informed Carolyn, his wife, that he wanted to spend some time in Silver Plume alone and work on a novel. Plus, by doing some hiking in the mountains, he hoped to get into shape and overcome his fear of heights. Even though his wife was initially wary of this idea, his wife relented and agreed that he should fulfill his dream. Reinhard took a three-month sabbatical from work wow, and departed for Silver Plume. He settled in and found a vacant shop right next to a cafe on Main Street that he leased in order to sell antiques and matted photographs. Not long after his arrival in the sleepy town, someone mentioned that the previous tenant of that space had disappeared without a trace just a year before. Reinhardt considered this to be an ideal story to tell and began to research Tom Young. Curiosity quickly turned into an obsession. Unfortunately, Reinhardt was beset with problems. The shop wasn't doing much business, and this is understandable for a small town like Silver Plume. On top of that, he began to get writer's block and writer's cock, and his inspiration started to wane. Reinhardt may have become a little disillusioned with how things were going, but he did love walking in the nearby Rocky Mountains. On July 31st, 1988, local hunters were patrolling the mountain wilderness approximately an hour's walk away from Silver Plume when they found a skeleton propped up against a tree. Not far away was a backpack, a pistol, and the skeletal remains of a dog. You guessed it. It was Tom Young and his dog. His dog's name was Gus. Gotta love Gus. Both had a gunshot wound to the head. This discovery helped bring additional details to light. Several days before he disappeared, Young had bought a pistol. Police treated this as a simple suicide, but others were not so easily convinced. Young was extremely fond of Gus and locals couldn't see any reason why Young would shoot Gus. According to Unsolved Mysteries, nice, ballistic tests were unable to match the bullets to the gun. The mystery of what happened to Tom Young may or may not have been solved, but there was more to follow. A week after Young and Gus were found, Reinhardt closed up his shop for the day. The evening was drawing on and Reinhardt walked all around town into the cafe and he told everyone that he encountered that he was heading out to hike up to Pendleton Mountain. Those that he told assumed that he was kidding around. A round trip on the mountain would take at least six hours. Sunset in Silver Plume in August occurs around 8 p.m., and very few people are skilled enough to hike the Rockies at night. Also, the elevation at the top of Pendleton Mountain was more than 20,000 feet, and the risk of exposure to the elements was very high, even in the middle of summer in July. Wild animals such as mountain lions and bears could also pose a threat. 
Reinhardt had no preparation at all and no suitable mountain gear or supplies when he was seen heading towards the base of the mountain. This was not his first attempt, though. Friends recalled that his previous attempt to climb the mountain had ended when he showed signs of vertigo. That's not a good sign. Reinhardt set a deadline of 10 p.m. for his return and departed at 4.30 p.m. That's way too late. This was the last time he was ever seen. When the following morning arrived, there was still no sign of Keith Reinhardt. The Colorado Alpine Rescue Team launched a huge rescue operation involving helicopters, search dogs, and many townsfolk. Townsfolk. After one week, authorities found nothing. Everyone knew that the rescue effort was not going to be an easy one, but at least one person commented that this was the classic needle-in-the-haystack endeavor. They finally called off the search on August 12, 1989, when sadly, a Cessna carrying two of the searchers crashed. Only one of the pair survived the impact. Oh my god. That always sucks when the people who are like trying to help, you know, end up dying. That's always like such a shitty situation. Like you're doing a really good deed trying to help somebody else out and you die as a result. It sucks. So what we have here is two men that vanished under strikingly similar circumstances in a town that is like super duper small, all within a year apart. And they all appeared to be sort of like just a coincidence. Friends of both men were at a loss to explain any of it. A strange discovery was found in Keith's home. Next to his computer, a newspaper article about Tom Young laid open. On his computer, the manuscript for his novel was not finished, but there was a passage about a man named Guy Gypsium. And now, a dramatic reading. Guy Gypsum changed into some hiking boots and donned a heavy flannel shirt. He understood it all now and his motivations. Guy closed the door and then walked off towards the lush, shadowless Colorado forests above. From what friends can tell, these were the final words that Reinhardt had written. Was he setting the stage for his own disappearance? Reinhardt also did something else that may point to a setup. One week before he walked off into the mountains, he wrote a letter to the editors of the Herald newspaper, where he worked in Illinois, to tell them that when he returned, he wanted to cover the Chicago Bulls. Why not? Very good team. <laughs> Wait, was this, this was in the 80s? What was this? They were like the best team ever. This would certainly make a disappearance appear accidental, right? Let's come back to work. Almost as soon as he vanished, everyone began to speculate about the possible reasons as to why he vanished. Among these is the idea that Reinhardt had no intention of returning, that this whole thing was engineered on his part. The night before he disappeared, Reinhardt was at a party, and he was seen talking extensively with a woman named Greta or Gretchen, who is presumed to be from Denver. 
Could she have had something to do with him deciding to escape his life? The last passage he wrote can be taken into a different context if that was the case. And now, a dramatic reading. No, I'm just kidding. That was the other one. He had uprooted himself and left behind everything that he had already known. Could he do it again? I don't know what that's talking about there. I guess they're talking about how he uprooted himself to go to this place and left his wife on sabbatical. I guess that's what they're referencing there. Could he do it again? You know, while on sabbatical, he leaves that and just completely disappears. Extending that idea a little further, in the run-up to his own disappearance, Reinhardt had shown more than a healthy interest in Tom Young. Was it possible that Keith Reinhardt wanted to become the new Tom Young? Reinhardt might have had issues with life in general, but nobody has admitted that he had some sort of a death wish. There is also no record of him ever owning a firearm. Authors do tend to try and live the characters that they create, and perhaps this is what Reinhardt was going for. Perhaps his lack of preparation ultimately cost him dearly. The terrain on and around the mountain is treacherous at best and deadly at worst. The problem with that idea is that there was not a long time between the disappearance and the search efforts. Perhaps this was some kind of a publicity stunt that ended up going wrong. The fatal crash of the Cessna might have convinced him not to reemerge and choose to remain in hiding, perhaps even in places like Mexico. There have been numerous sightings attributed to Reinhardt since his disappearance. I don't know. The Mexico idea. I'm calling bullshit right there. That sounds ridiculous. There is another possibility. As well as both men's disappearances, they had another thing in common. The actual shop itself. Some people have put a lot of importance onto this fact. Had they learned something about the store that put them at risk? If so, was foul play involved? This would suggest that somebody else had to have been involved. Was the local responsible for both deaths if Reinhardt indeed had died on the mountain? Or something to do with the store, I guess? I don't know. Did the same thing happen to Tom Young and then Keith Reinhardt? Could the same culprit have struck twice? Although there has been much debate and conjecture about this case over the last three decades... Nobody is any closer to an answer, and the case remains unsolved. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to throw in my two cents. I think it's possible that Reinhardt went out into this mountain knowing that he was not going to return. And I think, maybe, possibly, he committed suicide jumped off some sort of a cliff something like that where he knew like they're just not gonna find my body they're just not like you mean Colorado is huge these mountains so many places that you can just slip into a nook and cranny and disappear maybe that was the way he wanted to go I mean think about it. he went on sabbatical from his life I think all of us can kind of agree Sometimes life gets crazy, right? We love our family. We love our kids, whatever it may be, our spouse. We really do, right? But sometimes, you know, your job gets to you. Life gets to you. And I'm saying 99.9% of people will power through it and they'll keep going. 
maybe this guy, because he actually took this three months off to go live somewhere else, away from his family and everything, maybe he was a little more upset than he was kind of letting on, right? Like, he was a little more susceptible to these kind of thoughts. And when he got there, he found out about this other guy who had lived right where he did and also was, like, murdered or something. His dog Gus died as well. And he got kind of obsessed with it, and maybe he just decided that was it. Now, you know, I hate to kind of speculate and point towards suicide because I think sometimes that's unfair. If a person... We're getting serious here. <laughs> right now, we're getting serious here on Film Interrupted. I think it's kind of unfair sometimes to point towards suicide if you don't really have really concrete proof. Because, I don't know, I kind of look at it as not like suicide's necessarily a, a bad thing per se, but I think it's kind of an insult to accuse somebody of suicide if you don't really know for sure and you don't have the proof. You're like, oh yeah, they killed themselves. You may not know that. That person may have absolutely wanted to live and you just accuse them of killing themselves, which is kind of putting like a slightly bad you know, taste in my mouth about that person. Again, I don't really know what happened to this guy. Maybe he didn't commit suicide. That was just my one sort of speculation. I now feel bad about saying it, but I guess I was kind of leaning that way. Maybe it was just an accident. I'm not sure what happened to this guy. It really is a pretty difficult a pretty difficult mystery, but there are some signs there that this guy was definitely not maybe happy in his life, that he was a little lost in his path on this great course that we call life and I'm so nasally I'm just so nasally I don't know I got really deep here and I usually don't get deep on Phil Interrupted so let <laughs> fuck that let's move on to the next topic I, I think this one might be paranormal I'm not sure I don't remember oh yes I forgot about this one I should know what I'm talking about right on the show this is kind of cool this is kind of cool you guys ever had a dream out there ever I don't I go to bed and it's black and then I wake up but a lot of people had very vivid dreams and they remember their dreams very well my wife is one of those people she can tell me a 10 minute story about some super long in-depth thing that happened in her dream and I'm like wow I don't ever remember that kind of stuff but have you ever dreamt about a person that other people have seen well apparently it happens. There's one particular person that to date, over 2,000 people from all over the world have claimed to have seen in their dreams. It all started in January 2006 when a well-known psychiatrist in New York decided to sketch the face of a man who periodically appeared in her dreams providing advice. This sketch lay forgotten for some time until a patient of hers saw the sketch on her desk. The patient immediately recognized this man as appearing in his dreams as well. Both the psychiatrist and the patient had never seen this man in real life before. The psychiatrist found this to be quite interesting and forwarded the sketch to her colleagues to see if any of their patients suffered from reoccurring dreams and recognized him as well. Within months, 
four other patients identified the sketch as that of a man who occasionally visited them in their dreams. Additionally, all of the patients collectively referred to him as this man. What can be ascertained is that there is no common link between the thousands of people who have since claimed to have seen this man in their dreams. The dreams cover a variety of themes ranging from friendly advice, romantic encounters, to nightmares involving horrific attacks. The article goes on to list numerous people who have described really in-depth dreams about this man. And there is a, uh, a hand-drawn image, which we'll get to here, but a hand-drawn sketch, I guess we'll call it, of a guy. He looks like a total goofball. I mean, I'm looking at him right now. You can look this up. He's got, he's got huge eyebrows. Very, very large eyebrows. They're like caterpillars, these eyebrows. And he's, uh, he's got a receding hairline. He's definitely losing some hair. Uh, side part. Uh, wide lips. He seems like a friendly, gentle uh, fella. But this is uh, it's the guy known as this man. A variety of theories have been presented as to why so many people are having dreams of this same man. Some range from the collective unconsciousness, where this man appears during times of hardship or uh, a religious experience based on the theory that this man is God presenting himself in a physical form. Although there are thousands of people who claim to have seen this man in their dreams, speculation exists that this is an elaborate hoax created by a webmaster of www.thisman.org. The individual is identified as an Italian sociologist and marketing strategist, Adriana Nutella. Nutella also sells uh, a type of um, hazelnut cream that's very popular now. Nutella also operates an aggressive advertising agency called Guerrilla Marketing, which was involved in a variety of marketing projects ranging from art, politics, and porno. What? Porno? How did that get involved here? <laughs> porno. You know what? It it's just it gets gets into everything sooner or later. Porno. This is kind of cool. There's an American filmmaker named Brian Bertino that has said he is going to direct a film about this phenomena called This Man. I think that would be a really cool movie. Like, just the idea of this. Even if this is total bullshit and people aren't really seeing this, you know, black and white sketch of the same guy in their dreams, that's a super cool idea for a movie. If the proper... This, I don't know if it's this guy or somebody else like the proper director or studio got their hands on this film and could make this correctly in a very scary almost like subtle way where people are having the same reoccurring dream with this man that could be a really good movie and it doesn't even necessarily have to be a scary movie it could just be one of those movies that like unnerves you if it, if it was done correctly because it's a really interesting idea that people could all be dreaming of the same person like I said some of these were romantic encounters some of them were it was horrific some of them it was no big deal it was just a passerby someone giving advice 
a friend or whatever. It's a really cool idea for a movie. And it definitely intrigues me. If somebody out there with a better, you know, idea of how to put a movie together than me was able to uh, to get this idea and kind of run with it, it sounds like it could be really, really intriguing. And if it was done really well, I could see like multiple different movies being made about it because it's such a great, like, simple title, This Man, right? It doesn't have to be complicated. It's this guy that comes to us in our dreams. It's not, not Freddy Krueger kind of thing, but more I think of it more like subtle like a slender man kind of thing like this mysterious guy who appears and you don't know whether he's a friend or a foe I don't know I'm kind of running with this idea but I think it'd be really cool if someone made a movie out of this idea I think it'd be really really interesting now the possibility of this being a hoax has never been formally confirmed in any way shape or form and in the meantime this man established itself online as a means to help identify who this man is. If you ever dreamed of this man or you've any information on who he may be, please let this website know. Thisman.org is the name of the website. I actually have not gone to it. I do not know if it still exists. Let's do it right now, right here on the show. Thisman.org. Let's see if this is still functioning website it is and there's the creepy black and white picture of this guy's huge eyebrows it's right here there is there is most definitely a website thisman.org ever dream of this man every night throughout the world hundreds of people dream about his face so there you have it guys that was four different stories all unique in their own sort of way mysteries uh for sure unsolved uh, for the most part here we don't we don't really know what these are but i thought that this would be kind of a cool new addition to film erupted something that periodically uh reoccurring you can come back to and do a little bit of histories mysteries murders and the unexplained this has been volume one hope you guys enjoyed some of these cool stories if you have any um really interesting mysteries that you ever want to send my way and you want me to share on the podcast i would be more than happy to do so um if it's something you know really crazy and interesting a lot of intriguing stuff out there if if so send it to philinterrupted at gmail.com and i would love to share with everybody else uh whatever you found you know lots of cool stuff nevertheless people uh, i'm sorry again about the, the nasal cavities i apologize hoping take some nasal spray maybe that'll help i don't know guys but we're making moves here on film erupted and we will catch you next time peace Sow. on top of that he began to get writer's block and writer's cock